Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of the 50th law by 50 Cent and Robert Greene, the master. Mm. Is it 50 Cent and Robert Greene? Or is it Robert Greene and 50 Cent? Or is it just Robert Greene about 50 Cent? I think it's mainly Robert Greene about 50 Cent, but yeah. I think he threw in there 50 Cent it's probably for part a bit of, the of deal. marketing. I yeah. Part of the deal. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm happy about that. I'd rather Robert Greene probably write the book because he's our favorite <laughs> author and he's a superstar. That's it. What have we done? We've done the 48 Laws of Power, the 33 Strategies of War, Mastery, Laws of Human Nature. Am I missing one? Well, I think that's about it. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't done Seduction. It's coming. And now we're doing the 50th Law. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So they're all going to come and uh, he didn't disappoint again with this one. That's it. Well, writing about various power players in history, big old Robbie, he discovered, uh, he developed a bit of a theory that the source of power was a unique quality that separated them from others. So he talks about Napoleon in his previous books, and for Napoleon, it was the ability to absorb massive amounts of detail and organize his mind, and this allowed him to know more than his rival generals. So when it came to his 33 Strategies of War book, that was kind of one of the big things that helped Napoleon along the way. Now, for 50, he's got his own power, and that's actually his utter fearlessness. Now, he's a bit of a madman, old 50. He doesn't just rap about it. When you actually get into the details of his story, he's a wild man and he's a fearless man and that's really taken him from Southside Queens as a drug dealer who could have gone down the gurgler, but instead he's the superstar today who uh, you know, just recently, well, what, played at the Super Bowl last mm, year. He did. He did. He doesn't scream and yell, uh, but if he does, it's actually an intentional act that's really more theatre than actual anger or aggression. Behind the scenes, he's actually cool and calculating. Uh, his lack of fear is displayed in his attitudes and his actions. He's seen and lived through many, many, many dangerous encounters on the streets that he doesn't really care about what happens in the corporate world in terms of that fearlessness approach. If he needs to play a little rough and a little dirty, he does so without any second thought. Yeah, you'll pull out that Colt 45 and do what he has to do with it. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. In the boardroom, Exactly, yeah. in the boardroom. <laughs> but there's a lot of we can take from his philosophy because fears for 50, just like for us, they're really a prison that can find the actions that we can take in our life. And the less we fear, the more power we have and the more fully we're going to be able to live. For us humans, fear has served a positive purpose. Now, we could remember the source of a threat, uh, which means we're going to protect ourselves against it next time. Civilization, it's kind of depended on this ability for, to foresee and then protect ourselves against potential dangers that are coming. So, you know, fear kind of makes sense to have a bit of fear. Yeah. So, back then, in terms of supply and demand on fear, there was a lot of demand <laughs> of fear because there's a line who could actually um, come and just take your ass out. The supply just equaled it and made sense. But these days, really, the demand of fear, it's gone through the floor. There's a lot less reasons <laughs> to be out there. You're not going to get your ass eaten by a lion um, when you walk down to the milk bar back in the day. But we still have that exact same amount of fear. That's the issue. Nice. So, just my economics brain was trying to work out which was demand and which was supply. Oh, I think I swapped. I think, <laughs> so, you're saying, you know so, basically, what you're saying is the world around us, there are less reasons or less needs to have fear, but our brain still has the same amount of fear. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly yeah. right, man. Like we, we fear all sorts of shit that we don't have to, like the status in society, whether you're liked in the group of mates or not, or you might be anxious of your livelihoods, like, hey, can I afford that you know, expensive car? But really, you could get away with anything. You're actually not going to be hungry or, or get your ass eaten by a line again. Yeah, in these times of uh, prosperity, 
we have kind of the luxury of fretting over things, you know, but in times of trouble, the fearless attitude is what becomes pernicious. I don't even know what pernicious means. Necessary, I'm guessing. Pernicious? I used to say that. Uh, with that word out in pernicious. my year 12 uh, English, because I remember I used to do the, the strategy, the thesaurus strategy <laughs> and throwing words that I didn't understand. So I'll just do a quick Google. Oh, pernicious, having a harmful effect. There that's, you go. That's a good one. So, that's a, a good, bad... That's a good thesaurus strategy one, I think. That's rather a bad than, thing, yeah. Rather than say bad thing. So, we were all basically too afraid, Ash Joe, of all sorts of things, offending people, stirring up conflict, just standing out in the crowd or taking a bold action. Yeah, we're, we're too afraid. And so, really, I guess the, there's two ways to deal with all this fear that we're feeling. One way is the passive way. Now, in the passive mode, we seek to avoid any situation that's going to cause a little bit of fear and anxiety, this could translate to you know postponing big decisions that you know might hurt somebody's feelings. It could mean opting for everything to be safe and comfortable. There's, you know we don't want any kind of messiness or sloppiness. We need everything to be nicely organized and lined up so that we don't have to put ourselves into any situation that might bring about fear. But alternatively, we've got the active variety, and this is the where a risky or a difficult situation is thrust upon us or we thrust ourselves upon it. If it's thrust upon us, it could be a natural disaster or someone dies or, or some sort of risk is happening to us in the streets, whatever it might be. Oddly, these moments can actually be therapeutic at times. But the thing is, these moments is the active variety. They don't pop up too many times in our life. Throughout history, people lived in much uh, tougher and tighter circumstances than we're living in today. Dangers were pressing on them on a daily basis. As you were talking about, Jonesy, the big lion, we're probably going back a thousands going of years there, there, even going back hundreds of years, even just the dangers of you know clean water to drink and food to eat was all around us and uh, there wasn't really the medical system we've got today. So it was a, a lot more dangerous. So people needed to confront their fears in the active mode much more than the passive mode. It could have been, uh, you know, growing up in extreme poverty, facing death on the battlefield, living through revolutions, having brushes with death. You know, people were facing fear in the active mode all the time. Yeah, that's it. And for some people, it smacks them for six, doesn't it? Because they're growing up in these hardened circumstances and they're crushed by this adversity. But there are some people out there who experience these active fears and actually rise above them through their only positive choices they make. That's it. Today, we're probably doing a hell of a lot of passive, trying to deal with fear in the passive mode, but the active mode is the one that's going to make us, uh, I guess you could say, a bit anti-fragile, just to quote your mate Nassim Taleb. You know, we if we confront our daily fears in an active way, we overcome them, then we're going to be toughened by them. We're going to be hardened by confronting these fears in the active mode. That's it. We want to be approaching them, not having a defensive position against these active fear, but actually converting it into an offensive one and going after them. And this is really what's represented by 50, 50 cent, Ashto. So people like 50, they find chaos of the times that suit their temperament. They're unafraid of experimentation, hustling and trying new ways of operating. They embrace the advances of the disruption of technology. They let go of the past and create new business models. And they don't give in to the conservative spirit. It's really haunting a lot of the other people just walking down the street today. It was a, I suppose it was a smart... Uh he says it's a bit of a law of power, this 50th law. You know, he's got the 48 laws of power. He skipped one to get to the 50th one. Just uh, some, again, some good marketing there. But really, the, um, 
he says that the greatest fear people face is the fear of being themselves. You know, people want to be 50 Cent or, you know, you want to be Joe Rogan or you want to be Oprah or you want to be Angelina Jolie or you want to be Elon Musk or whoever. You want to be somebody else. You don't want to be yourself because the fear of being yourself is one of the biggest fears. Yeah. So, if you're not being yourself, you're actually like just a little weakling and everyone can smell it on you. No one's paying attention to you because you're someone who's running away from the one thing that you own and that's who you are. And what makes the fearless types different is they lose that fear. So the fiftieth law—it's based on the following premise. You know, we humans generally have little control over our circumstances. You know, the people we interact with, the environment around us, the things that are changing in the economy or in the in our country or whatever it is—we don't have a hell of a lot of control with it. And we often spend our days reacting to what these outside forces bring. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we don't. But the fiftieth law—it's all about the one thing that we can actually control, and that's our mindset and our attitude. Well, an attitude, if you, we've all got, we can all put a different attitude on and it leads to different places in our lives. But the one that we have, if it's fearless, imagine if you are fearless, what you could actually do with that attitude. You know, overcome all sorts of the things that you're shit scared of, the anxieties, and force your fearless attitude of life. And if you do, what's going to happen is something really strange because the actual things that you have control over, it's going to go from this little circle around you. But if you're fearless, what you can control over increases significantly over time. And that's really what happened with all the people who have um, been fearless in history and actually made an impact on the world. Obviously, Astro, they weren't just like little scared inklings. Clearly, they were fearless to actually have a crack at things that were well beyond them. That's right. Those who follow this 50th law, the law of the that take on this fearless attitude, they're not afraid of change. They're not afraid of chaos. They embrace it and they embrace it by being as fluid as possible. They move with the flow of events. They generally channel them in the direction of their choice. They exploit moments that pop up. Through their mindset, through their attitude, they convert any negative into a positive. So 50, he grew up on the grim streets of uh, Southside, Queens. Of course, his name was Curtis uh, before he was named 50. It was a pretty shitty reality staring at him in his face because he Everywhere he looked, it wasn't probably the best path to go down. Uh, a lot of the kids out there didn't get far. They could choose low-paying jobs or they could turn a crime and make some quick dollars. Yeah, he says that the nerds in, in school, they worked hard but kind of hit some kind of middle management position and couldn't really get much further. The ones who went to the streets, they ended up dead or prison, or you could just try to escape it all and turn to drugs and just sort of opt out of society. And once you started down that path, there was no real turning back. So luckily, there's a bloke one day, he came up to him with a wonderful name called Truth. And you're going to probably listen to a guy called Truth because you probably t- yeah, think he's, he's telling the truth or it's just a little game he's playing. But he said, look, the hard life of these streets that we're going through now, it's actually a blessing uh, if you know what you're doing because... It's such a dangerous world. If you're a hustler, you have to focus intensely on what's going around you and figure out what's going on. He says the greatest danger when you're playing that game, it's not the police, it's not some nasty rival. The greatest danger is actually your mind going soft. And truth, you saw it happen all the time. Hustlers, things were going well. They start to think they've worked it out. They start to get on top of the situation. They reckon they've got this game worked out and uh, they've probably avoided some of those nasty conflicts that they had in the early days and they start to go a bit soft. So, Curtis, he took this on board and over time, he became one of the savviest hustlers selling drugs in the neighborhood. Um, And the future started to look promising, but just one moment's inattention cooked him because at the age of 16, he was sentenced to nine months in shock rehab center. 
What's that? Is that jail? I suppose it's like a juvenile. He's under juvenile he's jail. 16, so he's probably lucky that he um he was 16 and not 18, I reckon, or it could yeah. have been a bit longer. Yeah. Well, he take that. <laughs> he had this unbridled ambition. He wanted real power, something he could build upon, but no street hustler sort of lasted that long. It was kind of a, you might quickly get to the top and then someone else is going to take you down because they've all, they're all fighting over a small sort of territory. So he, he thought that the life of a hustler was really a young man's game. By the time the hustlers reached their 20s, they slowed down, something bad would happen or they'd go to some other low-paying job. They think it's going to go on forever, but it really doesn't. But uh, 50 was one of the ones to say, okay, there's a definite end point to this. So I need to start thinking what next. That's it. So all the, all the conventional paths that were laid out in front of him were pretty pretty not that inspiring so he thought hey i need to i'm young and i'm ambitious i can't be afraid i need to wake up and get out of this and try and figure out a a new plan a new plan that hasn't been laid out in front of me or like he said in his title get rich or die trying because that's the sort of urgency he threw upon himself and you think that the like the urgency he had in the south side queens really doesn't um, affect you we got the comfort of our air-conditioned offices and just homes and you're not probably going to get shot in the street. You probably don't have to resort to drug dealing or anything like that. But in many ways, it's actually much more grimy and dangerous place for you listening right now as it was for him. And there's every bit of the same sort of reason for you to have the same urgency to get out. Yeah, Truth's advice to 50 applies just as much to you. The greatest danger you face is your mind growing soft and your eyes getting dull probably easy to go soft isn't it when you're here than you if you're on the streets I living you in the start, active you probably start and so i think probably the 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 on the streets you start hard and get soft here you probably are just always soft i reckon just, just soft on and our limp. side of the uh on our side of the of the uh of the mic i reckon yeah well let's see you get soft and you start just wishing things were a certain way something else that you're not living right now and slowly and subtly you turn inward to your thoughts and desires and you sort of get despondent but on the other hand, if things are going well, like you were saying, Ashley, you become complacent and you become soft and limp. Before you know it, there's a young whippersnapper who's just going to take your position. <laughs> really come along and trim those edges with the whippersnapper. When you work for others, you're at their mercy. They own your work. They own you. Your creative spirit, it's squashed. What keeps you in these positions really is a fear of having to either sink or swim by jumping out on your own. I suppose um, being in a job, sometimes it gives you that comfort. But if you're out on your own, you're probably living in the active fear mode a lot more. Because when you're out on your own, as you say, you have to figure out how to sink or swim on your own and not rely on someone else's lifeboat. For 50, he had a, a record deal. He was going to launch the album Get Rich or Die Trying. There was a hell of a lot of work to do. So he went to LA to work with Interscope Records on these. But the more time he spent in their cushy offices, the more he kind of had the feeling that this was really a turning point. He could either kind of submit to the record and their wills and, and follow their rules and play their game, or if he wanted to do it his way, he was going to have to step out there again and uh, get hard. So the, the game the music executives were playing was simple, right? Like their, their model is they owned your music and a lot more. So they'd come in and package you, the artist, in some way that they liked, and then they dictated all the key decisions about what you're going to do, your music videos and your publicity, and in return, they lavish you. They gave you a lot of money and perks. And if they put this deal on the table at the start, a lot of people just sign their life away. Um, but at the end of the day, what they'll be doing then is having this feeling of dependence mm. on the record company and they own your ass. It's a bit of a power game in itself. If you're a you know young recording artist and they're the ones with all the money and they're, they're waving all these things in front of your face, 
Obviously, you're going to go along with their game and do things their way. But then, of course, you're really under their control and under their command. Well, that's what came in every movie pretty much, didn't it? Like the Elvis movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Elvis one, exactly. Same with there's a few others exactly like that. Was it Queen? Queen had a bit of that tension going on. A little uh, bit. Homie Rhapsody. A little bit. So did Elton John, I think. Pretty sure. I think Elvis was probably the better, better example. Better example. Yeah. <laughs> of yeah. the, the manager kind of owning all the decisions. But for 50, he didn't want to go down that path. He wanted to have his self-reliance, which is a really key message in this book because instead of going to that, getting that short-term cash and taking what was on the table, instead he wanted to go back into hustling mode like he was on the streets to reclaim his own empire. That's right. He wanted to shoot his own music videos with his own money and come up with his own marketing schemes. And I don't think many young recording artists would ever do that. To Interscope, they kind of thought, oh, okay, fine. We'll save all our money. We don't have to take you out to the fancy clubs and take you out and you know, uh, wine and dine you if you're going to do it on your own. Go and do it. Saves us a bit of time and money. So they thought, okay, go for it. But to 50, he knew that it was a, it was a pretty important step to really taking control over his own image. So he used Interscope as a school for himself on like just so he, you know, did sign with them to some extent, but only for them to teach him how to run things when he went out on his own, because that was his end game from the very start. Whenever he was signed, he's like, how can I use this period as an apprenticeship to go out on my own and actually make things better myself? By really taking back the power, he didn't have any executives to please. He didn't really have any bosses to answer to. So he could kind of expand his own empire on his own terms. It was kind of like he had the freedom that he once had back on the streets selling drugs. Now he had that freedom on the global scale. Now, for us, we can all be in the same situation because we can have the the greater fear of what happens if we stay and remain dependent on others for power in our job. Um, instead, we should be able to maneuver ourselves in our life to the point where we actually own everything. So we own, it might be a little corner working for ourselves. Uh, at least you own it and it's yours to lose and if you are in that period of ownership and working for yourself as much as you can or self-reliance, you're actually more motivated, you're more creative and you're actually going to be more alive and perhaps most importantly, when you're completely self-reliant, you can actually completely be yourself. Remember, that was the number one fear that 50 was talking about before. Before it's too late, we need to reassess our own sort of concept of ownership. It's not about possessions or money or titles. We can have all those things in abundance. But if you're still somebody who's looking to someone else for this, really you're going to be dependent on them. It's uh, not just ownership of things, it's more ownership over yourself. That's right. So true ownership, it really comes from in and comes from a disdain from anybody or anything that tries to impinge on your mobility. If someone tries to just take that away from you, you need to sort of repel from them as much as you can just to have the confidence in your own decisions and use your own time and in your own education improvement for what your enterprise is. We're living through an entrepreneurial revolution comparable to the one that sort of swept through 50s neighborhood in the 1980s, but on a global scale. The old power centers are breaking up. Individuals everywhere want more control over their destinies, kind of have less respect for authority, uh, but that's kind of not based on merit. It's more based on power. So dependency, it's a real easy habit to acquire. Like you want to get a job straight away. You want to get a salary. You want to get find comfort as much as you can. But before it's too late, we need to be able to try and move ourselves in the opposite direction. And it's not going to come from books, learning, listening to podcasts, gurus, taking pills. It can only come from you and trying to exercise the practice on a daily basis of having your self-dependency. Your life should be a progression towards ownership. First, mentally, it's kind of your own independence. And then physically, 
in terms of actually your, your own work and owning what you produce. Now, for a lot of people out there, you might be thinking, hey, I can't just quit my job like Tony Robbins and you guys at what you will learn are saying right now. It's just not practical. But in reality... We're, and we're not saying that. We're not, we yeah. aren't saying that because there is a real practical advice that we can learn, say, from a story here from um, Cornelius Vanderbilt and his attitude. And he ended up being a superstar, but he was uh, born in 1794 and died in 1877. He was 12 years old when he went to work for his father in his small shipping business. It was pretty um, dirty work. He really hated it. But he kind of made a determination. He said, okay, you know, at the moment, I'm working in my father's small shipping business and the work sucks. But he thought, you know what? One day, I'm going to start my own shipping business. And that's when things kind of turned around for him. Yeah, so originally, it was just dead time. You're just going to work. You're just moving boxes, whatever it is for the shipping business. But that one decision changed everything. When he realized, all right, I'm going to end up doing my own thing one day, all of a sudden, his job went from some boring little thing that was just pointless to actually being an urgent apprenticeship. So now it was really a learning opportunity where he could learn everything he could about this business, including how he actually do it better than his father. Instead of it all being dull labor now, it was a really exciting challenge where he got so much out of this time where he had a job. When he turned 16, he borrowed 100 bucks from his mother. What's 100 bucks in 1800? Probably a couple of grand. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, inflates up a fair bit. But he used this money to buy a boat and then he began ferrying passengers between Manhattan and Staten Island. Within a year, he'd paid back his mother's loan. By the time he was 21, he made something of a small fortune and he went on to really become one of the wealthiest men of his time. So from this experience, he established his own lifelong motto and that was never be a minion, always be an owner. And uh, that's definitely what he did because time, it's a critical factor in our life. It's such a precious resource. In our jobs, if we're actually just wasting that time and actually not using it as an apprenticeship to do um, something, something better, then we're not actually going to end up being able to, to get out of that rut. If we make that determination like big old Vanderbilt to become an owner, not a minion, then the time is used really to learn as much as possible. We don't just see it as a, a tough, dirty, boring old job where we're just going and getting a paycheck and that's it. We're really seeing it as uh, an opportunity, as an apprenticeship. You know, we're going to look at the political games. We're going to understand the nuts and bolts of whatever particular venture you're in. You're going to work out what's the larger game going on around you in the business world and try to work out how you can do things better. Finally, when we do uh, make our own enterprise, it is now the opportunity to make it a reflection of, of our individuality because our whole life, we've been going out there and developing skills on self-reliance to create this venture. Now, you can actually be your own boss entirely. Well, I think a lot of people out there talk about FU money. FU money is the point where you can just stick your finger up anyone or basically just do what you want with complete freedom. But this is what maybe I'm reading between the lines here, Ash. I think this is what he's getting at is what you can do this when you actually uh, got your own enterprise. It's a reflection of who you are. There's a quote here from James Baldwin. If one is continually surviving the worst that life can bring, one eventually ceases to be controlled by a fear of what life can bring. I suppose it's just that repeated exposure to going through bad shit and coming out the other side. Eventually, you're not going to be as afraid of whatever bad shit's lurking around the corner. Yeah, making what lemonade out of lemons, or as Fiddy says in the title of this chapter, turning shit into sugar. That's it. Bit of a harder alchemy, you could say. <laughs> I wouldn't be eating that sugar personally. I'd probably have lemonade, but I don't know about that sugar. That's right. I don't think I would either. But mate, 50, um, for him, 
he's obviously had his whole bunch of stuff we were talking about earlier about his journey into the music industry and what he'd done. And it was a time now where he was going to come up with his first album. His debut album was going to be called The, the um, Power of the Dollar. But famously, in May of that last year, however, um, someone hired an assassin, went up to Fiddy, and as we heard in all of his songs now, he was shot nine times and, a, and to, <laughs> while he sat in the back of a car. And one bullet, of course, went through his jaw and all, almost killed him. Yeah, it was just a couple of weeks before the album was going to be released. And of course, literally in a, a, a click of the fingers, all that momentum that he built up completely turned. You know, the Columbia cancelled this album. They released him from his contract. Uh, they were just saying, no, nah, this is... We, I know we're, we're kind of pretending that we're part of the, the rap game and the street culture, but we're really not. This is just too much violence. for We don't want any part of this. Yeah, so it's pretty hard for 50, right? Because like in a flash, he'd, he'd had his dream of getting in the music industry, finally got finally got the label, was off the streets, but then everyone cancelled him now and he was shot and almost dead. Um, so he's poised for fame and he was just asking himself the question, could this be the end of all these mm. efforts I've had in my life? Yeah, sometimes he thought it could have been better to die that day than to feel that complete powerlessness, that complete stuck back in that rut that he'd worked so hard to climb himself out of. He sort of rested up at his grandparents' house. He was recovering from his wounds. He was listening to the radio and that actually gave him a sort of newfound optimism. He thought that the shooting was actually a bit of a blessing in disguise, that he'd sort of narrowly survived for a reason. He said that all the music on the radio was just was just trash. It was so packaged. It was so produced. It was so fake um, by all these wannabes. Even the so-called tough you know, gangster rappers were really not. They were just they were just smoke and mirrors. Well, that was the opportunity because they like they were people who were weren't real gangsters from the street. Whereas Fifty, he was clearly a gangster. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He's been shot nine times. I've been shot nine times. He, he did double down on that. It did come up in all of his books. So he used these nine bullets for a purpose in his life, and I guess he did turn shit into sugar. You could say, as, as he'd <laughs> say, true. and it was a moment where he could convert all of the anger and his dark emotions into a powerful campaign that would really change the game of hip-hop. He decided to disappear for a couple of months. He was sort of couch surfing at various friends' houses and really began to recreate himself to re... Well, not even relaunch, but to launch his music career. He no longer had any executives to please. He wasn't bound to any contracts or uh, any big bosses. So he could kind of push it as far as he wanted it. He could make it even tougher than it was previously. So he released a song, his first song in the streets, and this is a song that if he was um, still under a label that they just wouldn't say yes to, and the song was called Fuck You. Um, obviously a big finger up to the world, but it's literally just pointed at the killers and everyone who wanted him to die and said, look, you're going to have to kill me if you actually want to get rid of me. So he doubled down on this and everyone could hear the anger in his voice and the hard driving sound, which made a real sensation on the streets and which made his music so popular. That's right. It was no longer just the fake studio glitz and glamour. It was actually some real shit. And people on the streets could actually feel that it was real shit. And once he kind of had made that uh, transformation, the songs just started pouring out of him. And he started to realize that the greatest advantage he had in his campaign was that he'd already hit rock bottom and he had nothing else to lose. So he was really free to do whatever he wanted. And from there, uh, the rest was history. In the space of only three years between being shot and not having anyone looking at him, uh, Eminem, of course, heard the mixtape and he ended up being signed to Dr. Dre. And the rest, as they say, is, is all history. And it's a common occurrence. Almost all great military and political triumphs are preceded by some kind of crisis. You know, we want a substantial victory can really only come out of these moments of danger and being under attack. Without 
those moments of being on the brink of defeat, uh, of really hitting rock bottom. The leaders are never challenged. They never get to prove themselves. If the path's too smooth, you know, people grow arrogant. What do we say at the start? The mind grows soft, and that's when you make those fatal mistakes. Well, a lot of people out there, and it's probably conventional wisdom to think that an opportunity is just something out there. You're just waiting around, and then something pops up. There's only a few certain goal chances that pop up in your life, and we just got to wait for them to cross our path. But this is really limited in scope because you're just dependent entirely on outside forces on you rather than you um, being able to influence the opportunities that come into your life. Many of us have uh, had the experience where we find ourselves at some urgent, difficult situation. You know, we might have to get something done in some impossibly short amount of time or someone who is, uh, you know, counted on the help and the, your mate doesn't come through with the help or you're in some foreign country and you suddenly have to fend for yourselves. In these situations, the necessity kind of forces us in some direction. And what usually happens is our minds snap to attention. We find that necessary energy kind of because we have to. We pay attention to the details that we normally overlook because they are the things that might spell the difference between success and failure or sometimes life and death. So thinking of those active modes that do pop up every now and then which make you act out of necessity, we need to sort of inject those moments into our life as much as we, we possibly can because under the, that necessity, we're very surprised about how inventive we really become. So if only we could have that spirit and attitude in everyday life. Quote from 50 Cent, he says, people talk about him getting shot like it represented something special. They act like they're not facing the same thing, but someday everybody has to face a bullet with his or her name on it. That's a nice one, isn't it? Talking Hopefully, about, it's a metaphorical one. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, it, obviously, that, that gave him his sense of urgency in our life, and we sort of just think death's not going to come for us, but it is going to come, and there is a, a ticking clock on your life, and when we actually confront our own mortality, everything changes. And it sounds like Robert Greene here, because uh, he is writing a book on, I think, mm. this um, next topic is his next book, right? Yeah, The Sublime. Yeah, I think it was in... It was in the 48 Laws of Power, yeah, and now he's yeah. gone again in the, in the 50th Law and eventually it'll be a full book of its own. I wonder when, hopefully soon. If you do confront that mortality, what matters to you now is that you live your days well and as fully as possible. You know, Sometimes that might mean pursuing endless pleasures, but really nothing becomes uh, more boring than, than having to always search for distractions to fill your days with fun and joy. It's only one way to go and generally it's probably something we do for a short time but then we realize maybe there's something more meaningful we could do with that with that newfound focus instead. When we have this new focus compared to the shortness of, of your days, these little petty battles and anxieties that you have and these fears that pop up, they really got no weight. Instead, we've got a sense of urgency and commitment and whatever we're doing that we're trying to do in life, we do it well with all of our energy, not with the mind shooting off in 100 directions. A final quote from uh, 50 Cent. When I nearly died, it made me think, this can happen again at any second, so I better hurry up and do what I want. I started to live like I never lived before. When the fear of death is gone, then nothing can bother you and nobody can stop you. Mm-hmm.